This is a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne, truly independent community radio. Art Attack is our fortnightly visual arts review segment. Richard Watts with you here, joined in the studio uh, because I pushed the wrong buttons and my guests are slightly not quite prepared to go to air. So I haven't got our clothes on yet. <laughs> <laughs> joined in the studio by Ty Snaith and Ace Wagsoff. And uh, hello to you both. Good morning. Thanks for that. That's okay. And sorry, Ace, I've turned the wrong microphone on as well. That's all right. I'm adaptable. Uh, if I sometimes wish that the listeners could see everything that happens in the studio. That, well, that was quite because hilarious. There was, we just had a, a mad kind of waving around of microphones and unwrapping and rewrapping of headphone cables. And <laughs> it was a performance of sorts. It was. It, yeah. 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 We're here now. We're with you. Mechanical arms. It was very cyberpunk. Yeah. Yeah. Yes, uh, just before that, uh, <laughs> the intro to the show and that brief uh, ramble, we heard a track by David Bridey, The Shortest Day of the Year, taken from his album Wake, released back in 2013. So, now that we're all here, we're all wake. Uh, what have we been to see? Yes. Well, I was just saying to um, Ace off-air that... To who? Ace. No, I know, me. Yeah, go on. <laughs> off air. That, and I know I feel like I say this all the time because we do review things that we love. It's a bit of a thing that we do because there's so much to choose from. Why would you review the bad things, really? But anyway... Well, this... it, who has time for that in their <laughs> lives, you know? I, I was just thinking, though, that this show that we're about to talk about is so far definitely one of my highlights, I would say, if not my favourite show of the year so far. Um, we went to see Claire Lamb at Acker. A uh, massive big show um, at, if you don't know what ACCA is, it's the Australian Centre for Contemporary Art, the big rusty building down next to the Malt House um, for those theatre folk. Uh, and it, sh- her show is called Mother Holding Something Horrific, which I might add is possibly the best title ever. Mm. How good is that title? Yeah. It's a very evocative title, yeah, certainly. It's, yeah. it's so yeah. good. So, yeah, we went to go and see that and... I'm I'm still going to go back. I'm so into it. I really freaking loved it. Uh, just the, on that, going <laughs> back to the title <laughs> and the end. No, um, yeah, Mother Holding Something Horrific. All of the text in mm. the show I found like that, so evocative and so open and so posing. Mm. And as, as a creative, I guess, I hate that term, mm. as somebody, um, you know, with, with their feet in different areas of the world, um, as a writer as well, it's such a good writing prompt. I couldn't help but yeah. walk around the show. Just it, it, Everything sparks. Everything's well, really electric. Well, that's a really good um, segue, I think, into what I think is the essence of this show, is that it's kind of, it is a, it's this overarching narrative that Claire's made that touches on gender, sexuality, identity, class, mm. but it's based in sort of this... in her life in a weird way. So it's like she's used prompts from her life, like there's a photo of her birthing her first child, There's she's used her son in some of the scenes which are staged, you know, covered in some kind of gooey jelly stuff, and her her adult son. Um, And then it's almost like you walk through this set 
feels like a set. Like to me, it feels like you're walking through um, panels that could be mo- movable panels, uh, staged set. You know, with yeah. props and prompts and scripts all the way through. Oh, it's um, it's so the- theatrical. Yeah, but then where the line between what is her life? So they're real photos of her of her life mm. um, to what is an imagined text. Or I think in the in the catalogue it says. Um, a psychodrama, which I thought was a really good, you know, t- a transgressive psychodrama, which is it is what it is because yeah. it's somewhere between that narrative of real life, um, art life, um, drama, sound. Yeah, it's a it's a well, that, fascinating show. And that's you know even with memory, sure, there's you know something concrete like a photograph. Uh, even that's fallible catching you know just just one segment devoid of any emotional feeling if you were there within the scene of the photograph of her preparing to give birth to her son in i assume was their lounge room um you you would know that she's going to give birth you know Mm. that would that would be clear and present because of the urgency of that scene Mm. but looking at the photograph for me i found it really difficult to ascertain whether it was real or whether it was a staged reproduction of you know an event that happens yeah it was and then i think because there's also i mean that i think that yeah that oh, that overarching theme of reality and reenactment mm. is the essence of the show but then because claire is a sculptor you get these really intense objects throughout the space too so and then they're equally as loaded as those real nostalgic mm. photographs so there's one particularly in the sort of center part so you walk around the main part and into the middle bit um i don't know what the spaces are called at Acker, but the, the second what? part that yep. you walk through where it's sort of a series of of clear glass screens and in between each screen it's almost a a different object of significance so there's a rocking chair covered in sort of floral upholstery but Mm. then there's this this object that Claire's made actually you know handmade that's it's reminiscent of one of Gaudi's um, windows from one of his buildings but uh, and as much as you can be told that as soon as I saw it I just thought (laughs) diaphragm like yeah. I just looked at it and thought it's some weird sexualized, like oversized even, even diaphragm that, or something. It's you know even deeper than that. It's it's cellular. You know, it's yeah. like this ambiguous. You know, speaking of biology and of essence. Yeah, and and of being of the yeah. person. And but then when you get up close, there's you can see the chisel marks in the yeah. wood, and that's the artist's hand. So yeah. there's all these layers of you know of over her whole life really like it's it's an amazing show so rich you know the objects and the materiality within the show um just like the the documentation the pseudo documentation that Mm. occurs those objects similarly you know vary from being really clinical uh functional and then also to deeply personal and yeah ingrained with empathy and um, it's, it's huge feeling. Like, like which one? What are you referring to there? Like the rocking oh, chair? So for example, as soon as you walk into the <clears> space, you're you're met with the the screens that uh, look like scaffolding from the back of theatre production, mm. even hold down with with weighted sandbags and mm. still have masking tape notes on them to yeah, show so the how language they're assembled. of theatre is there. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Yeah. But then as you move into the space, as you were talking about, the handmade objects mm. and, you know, when you see the objects within the photographs, within both the documents, documentation and the pseudo documentation mm. it creates this real blurring that steps out from the image and in, steps into the real space with the yeah. viewer yeah and i think there's something about claire's work that i've always really loved like i'm definitely a big fan but there's there's something between that grotesque abject nature of the body and sexuality and and womanhood or femaleness mm. it's like sexuality really yeah. but and beauty and there's not many people i think that can make that 
step between the two things so kind of fluidly fluidly yeah, yeah and so there's, easily and there's something definitely of her work that reminds me of one of my other favorite artists louise bourgeois yeah who, oh definitely <clears throat> i think that she shares that similar language of also using very masculine materials like yeah. big heavy steel you know she welds and casts um alloys and bronze and steels yeah but then can also you know um birth a child <laughs> i guess is the other extreme and that's and that is an amazing feat like that's just something that not many people can go that that full gamut of of materiality really mm. So the exhibition that Ace and Tyre are discussing is called Mother Holding Something Horrific, which, as he said, is a great title. On at the moment at ACCA, the Australian Centre for Contemporary Art, until the 25th of June. If, if you're an English teacher, pose that to your students today <laughs> as a creative writing task, Mother Holding Something Horrific. <laughs> I, I'd love to see what comes out of that. Yeah, but it's also, I mean, it's that kind of, also reminds me, that title reminds me of that Eraserhead, you know, the film, the David Lynch film Eraserhead, where, you know, you want oh, to birth this oh, beautiful You've thing. You've just put that into my mind yeah i love that film but Ugh. but it's also kind of that thing when you are a parent you're like oh what is this alien this life constant form? push and pull you know it's yeah, it's, yeah. it's you it's your genetic it's like a clone but, but at the same it time s- it's completely separate from yourself yeah. yeah and i mean we were having another discussion off air about our lives these days being it's um claire lamb definitely is is talking about our lives as a as a performance or as a um you know, a public is are our lives so public now as well that they're almost an artwork in themselves. The yeah. idea and of life as performance right. through yeah. mediated uh, social social media and so forth. Yeah. yeah, I do think that there's a lot of that. And to um, I think to draw attention to that, Claire, as part of this work, has also collaborated with dancer Atlanta Eek, who yeah. who we've talked about before, and who is a, a again a fascinating dancer whose physicality is mediated mm. in uh, in performance through through screens and cameras and lenses and yeah. uh, again has had a, a history of some fairly abject performance That's as right. well. And so yeah. I think they share definitely share a language and they're friends and they've worked together before but as part of this show at ACCA, Atlanta is coming in every Saturday at 12pm and um, she's only got two more dates to do so this Saturday and the following Saturday um, and from what I've heard from, from the staff at ACCA, it's totally unscripted, those performances, mm. and every Saturday they're different. I'm, so I'm really keen to get to one I'm of so them I'm so glad you well. mentioned that because yeah. I've, I've, that's what I jotted down in my notes, but I forgot to say that in terms of materiality, in terms of these harsh, large steel structures, uh, you know, mechanical, mathematical, rigid, mm. uh, and then, you know, these handmade, lovingly constructed objects, mm. there's also, you know, the, the physical body the within body. the show yep. in these performances, you know, yep. there's flesh and blood in motion, um, yeah. which is, you know, especially yeah. considering the work that she's responding and working to. That's right. And the other thing actually I noticed just before I came in is actually today at 12.30, if you are interested mm. in Claire Lamb's practice and what she has to say, she's delivering a talk at the VCA in the um, theatre-y bit. What do you call that? I don't know what you call it. That sort of lecture hall thing. Um, <laughs> you might need to just RSVP to that or yeah. call up, but I think they're free and call you can up. go along. Yeah. yeah. But um, it is it is definitely... The type of show where you want to spend a bit of time and you probably want to go back maybe a couple of times or go back once oh, and then go and see the, the, the dance piece as part of it. Um, and, yeah, I, I do think that anyone even... I mean, I went with my partner who's an architect and he 
was totally into the way that the space had been um, transformed architecturally as well. Mm. And at the end, there's this kind of interesting little stage that's been built. It almost looks like a kind of sound shell stage with just a birthing stool on it, which on is it, kind yeah. of full on, like you're yeah. birthing on stage. And I, or, I don't doubt that that was the, <laughs> you know, the stool in the yeah, photos that she that she actually used. used. Yeah. yeah. So I think, and there's also the works at the start that have that almost look like advertising. So there's one yeah. that has a picture of a woman, and then across it it says she doesn't have very much money. Yeah. And there's another one um, that says that <laughs> oh, what does it say? Ruining the, the image or yeah, something? You've ruined the image, you've, or you've destroyed, you've destroyed the, image. the image. That's right. So. I think she's also then going into that world of like motif, you know, like almost advertising language of a personal advertising or that that personal critique writ large kind of thing. There's so many layers to but this like work. All of the that work, it, that advertising speaks in this place in between, you know, failure mm-hmm. and living earnestly, living as honestly as you can to mm. yourself and the world around you. Yeah. Um, which is, that's the most disjarring thing about those works is that they definitely have the visual language of advertising, but they're speaking of something... Well, they're critiques. Yeah. That, isn't that interesting? As a also, if you're a teacher, maybe you know, get your students to think of the worst cr- criticism anyone's given you and make an advertising mm. poster out of it. Speaking of students, uh, part of the exhibition at Acca of Claire Lamb, Mother Holding Something Horrific the series of public programs and public engagements that are coming up. Uh, ACCA and Arts Learning Festival are presenting a teacher's evening presented as part of the Independent Schools Victoria Arts Learning Festival and led by uh, ACCA Artistic Director Max Delaney, who's the co-curator of this exhibition. So it's an opportunity for primary and secondary teachers to enjoy a night in the gallery viewing and talking about contemporary art. So That would be fantastic if you're a teacher. I would definitely do that. So you can go to the ACCA website for more info, dot melbourne yeah. uh, good to see more organizations using the dot melbourne uh, url yeah uh, <laughs> and you can find out more information about it it's a free exhibition in the main exhibition gallery at Acker claire lamb mother holding something horrific on until the 25th of june and yeah. important to note that uh this is uh, an exhibition of newly commissioned work mm. as well yeah. That's so, right. Yeah, yeah, that's not old work, which is really, yeah. really interesting because it's a lot of work. I mean, that's a lot of work in that show. Yeah. But one thing I just wanted to, I mean, I think one thing from the catalogue or from one of the wall things that I wrote down, which I think really does encapsulate... The wall things. The wall things. That's a nice technical term. <laughs> I called? love those wall, wall things. things. <laughs> wall plaquey thingies. Ex- wall labels. You can download them as well from the PD- from the ACCA website. But one just sort of... Describes, it describes the show as describing the human condition in its cruel and horrifying glory. Again, I just thought that again, was English teachers, good. get on this show. There's so many writing prompts. But that's um, what it is. It's the human condition. Also, you mentioned Max Delaney co-curated. He did. He co-created with Anika Christensen. Co-curated. Co-curated. Created. Curated. <laughs> the artist Claire Lamb is a curator. <laughs> yeah. So congratulations Creator. to Max and Anika. Uh, Anika? Annika, for uh, yep. uh, co-curating this exhibition and commissioning the work as well. Mm. Yeah, Awesome show. Well done, Claire. We're just about out of time. Are any other quick exhibitions you uh, would Alice like Alice Wormald at Dane Singer. Oh, yeah, just um, about It finishes finish. on Saturday afternoon. Uh, yep. Do get along and see that in Flinders Lane just on the... Yes, that's a good one. West on the side of... of Elizabeth Street. Um, Elizabeth Street. Oh. And the other one that I went and s- went to the opening of is at Sarah Scout, Siri Hayes and oh, Anna Finlayson. I still, I still haven't been. Very good. Very yeah. good. It's series, um, it's sort of like a representation of series master's work, mm. if you saw that, but it's even better. And in that space, I think 
very interesting kind of dialogue between the domestic scale of the space and her works and what they're yeah. about. I thought, yeah. thought that was a really nice fit. So definitely that's just open. So go down and see um, Siri and Anna's work at Sarah Scout as well. And uh, if you wanted to visit the exhibition that uh, was just being discussed by Ty and Ace, it's Claire Lamb's Mother Holding Something Horrific at ACCA, the Australian Centre for Contemporary Art in South Bank, on until the 25th of June, and it's free. And the performance by Atlanta Eeks at, on Saturday at 12pm and yeah. the following Saturday, but there's only two left. More yeah. details on the ACCA website, acca.melbourne. Thank you both for coming in. Absolute Thanks for having pleasure. us. We'll catch you in a fortnight's time. <laughs> See you then. My next guest in the studio needs no introduction, but I'm going to give him one anyway. Paul Capsis is one of Australia's most versatile and fascinating performers uh, and is in Melbourne to star in the production of Cabaret, which is on at the Athenaeum Theatre from tonight uh, for a strictly limited season. Paul, welcome back to Triple R. Hello, Mr Watts. Lovely to have you here. Lovely to be here. Always wonderful to see you. Now, Cabaret is one of those musicals that has taken on almost mythical status. I mean, it, it's looking at a time in Germany's history where it was switching from hedonism to horror, which makes it a very timely musical for today. Uh, but it's also full of memorable tunes, fascinating characters. Uh, and what's the appeal of Cabaret for you? I think all those things you just mentioned, Bridget. The balance of political, historical uh, facts with wonderful songs. It's that great combination for me. That One of the things that I'm attracted to this show as a musical, because I'm not a big fan of musicals per se, but I am of cabaret because of that balance, because it's dealing with history um, it's dealing with politics, it's dealing with sexual politics, but all of that combined with great songs and interesting characters drawn from the Christopher Isherwood uh, books from the, you know, his time in Berlin from 1929 till just before Hitler took over and uh, where he uh, wrote about Sally Bowles and Fräulein Schneider and Ernst Ludwig and all these great characters that ended up in cabaret the musical and uh i just i just uh i unfortunately because of what's going on now in the world it is very relevant now i mean that was a kind of synchronistic thing i don't think the producers thought hey let's do cabaret because you know the because things going, are about to get dark things know. about to get really bad um it was just synchronistic and i remember the day i read the script from cover to cover was the day that trump got elected so I just felt like a dark cloud descended over me, reading, you know, as the as the, by the end of the day when he was announced that he was elected. So yeah, uh, but the songs are so good. Fred Ebb and John Kander, so so clever. There's some beautiful songs and some chilling songs mm. as well. Which again, it, it's that. We People often associate uh, musical theatre with fluffy, with feel-good, with trite. And when pe- people say that to me, when they say they don't like musical theatre, cabaret is one of those go-to references f- for me to say, look, yeah. no, can, can a, a musical can be subversive, political, it can be frightening. That's right. This is a fluffy, free zone, Richard. 
and it, everything you just said is exactly what it is. It, it can be frightening. I mean, the interesting thing was we did a two-month run in Sydney and the audiences mostly know the film Cabaret with Liza Minnelli, which for me is a masterpiece, and you and I have talked about that at length publicly. Uh, but it's... Um, so they have that in their heads and they come to the show and the stage show is always, it's a lot darker and um, it, it it sort of reveals other qualities that are not quite in the film and there are other characters, the characters of Schneider, Fräulein Schneider played by the great Kate Fitzpatrick and um, uh, uh, Schuller uh, who's played by John O'May and... Um, they just this John O'May plays the Jewish character, and what happens to him, or what's about to happen to him. But all through this beautiful singing and storytelling, we have an incredible cast. I mean, really, it's an extraordinary group of Australian artists. And now we have Gail Edwards, the great Gail Edwards, who's our new our Führer director Regie. She's come in to rework the piece for us and uh, so reworking it. Follow it for, uh, after its Sydney season, so it's been reworked for Melbourne audiences. Yeah, lucky Melbourne, lucky Melbourne, and lucky us to yeah. have Gail because she's sharpening the story. And I mean, it's interesting. We've got the great Rob Sawinski, Melbourne uh, light. I think one of the great uh, theatre lighting designers in Australia now. And he, I got, I was fortunate to work with him in um, Resident Alien last year doing the Quentin Crisp. At 45, yeah. Yeah, and he's, we've got him for Cabaret and he's just creating magic. And so Gail is just, just, just sharpen the story with the lighting, with our, our delivery and how we, how we're doing things. And I'm very different now from how I did it in Sydney for two months. Was that in response to some of the negative reviews that the Sydney season got? Because it, it got some some good feedback, but also... I don't read reviews. Okay. I have no idea. Okay, well... I, I just know what the punters said I, yeah. or what they say to me in my face. I mean, they may turn around and say I'm vile and horrible <laughs> and can't stand me, Richard. I can't imagine them. But, um, no, we got a really good reaction. We got a very strong reaction. I mean, people were quite shocked... Uh, I can I guess, imagine, because as you say, the film and the stage production are different beasts and if people yeah. only know the film, they would be expecting perhaps something a little gentler, not saccharine, certainly, but no. something kind of softer-edged rather than the darkness that is at the heart of Cabaret. Well, the character of Sally Bowles is a lot darker, is sadder character in the, in the stage version than the Liza interpretation. See, because I think what happened with Liza Minnelli and Bob Fosse was that he was in. He was hugely enamoured by her and allowed her to recreate Sally because Sally Bowles is English, and she's kind of washed up in Berlin and she's not such a pizzazzy. It's just what Liza brought to that role, which to me is still one of the great performances in film history. But uh, we've got the brilliant Chelsea Gibb who sings like I mean, honestly, she's got one of the most extraordinary voices and can dance and can act. She can do it all. Um, but she brings threats. in, I know, right? I'm not one of them. I'll out myself. But, you know, she, the, yeah, there's great people in the show and they're doing extraordinary things with their voices and with their acting. We've got this young Whopper graduate, Matthew Monaghan, who sings the Fatherland song, <laughs> the big Nazi yeah. top 10 yeah. hit. And he's extraordinary. We did the Zitzbrubber yesterday and I stood right next to him as he belted out and his tenor, I hate them all tenors, I'm jealous. And he just blew the roof off the place. 
I just saw Professor Merrick through a window. and um, Everybody's here at Triple Professor Merrick um, gave me his copy of uh, Before the Deluge, which I've just finished reading, which was one of the most extraordinary books about Weimar, Berlin, about the period from First World War to Second World War and what was going on with people like Lottie Lenya, Bertolt Brecht, all the great, you know, and Isherwood himself. So it was such a great book, 400 pages. I couldn't put it down. Now, you're playing the MC in this production, who is the MC in the, the club at the heart of the show. It's a role that's been performed by the likes of Joel Grey and Alan Cumming, to name many others. Yeah. What is it about the character that attracted you to the part? He's a survivor. I'm very interested in people who are survivors. I always have been. In, I mean, one of my favourite things to read are biographies and how people make it, how they get through life, and uh, particularly artists, particularly singers. And I feel like the MC is really about surviving not only po- extreme poverty, which was going on in Berlin at the time, and how that underground existed and grew in spite of what was going on on the surface, which was the rise of the Nazis and, of course, there was a communist. It was such a violent period in, in history. Berlin was such incredibly... There was so much killing and people, you know, factions and things like that. But for me, he he's like a... I don't know, I describe him as a cockroach. He's like a multi-layered, knows how to play everyone to survive... I mean, it's possible the MC may have survived the Nazis and gone on and either moved to a different country, got married, had children, who knows, or went to the gas chamber. Do you know what I mean? So um, I'm interested. And, of course, I pay a little homage to Joel Grey because he created the character and I just read his great book, Master of Ceremonies, and him and Bob Fosse didn't get on. Bit of gossip. Love a little bit of creative tension. It can lead to fascinating sparks and fascinating results on stage. Indeed. Yeah. Now, if you're attracted to, to the character and that exploration of how you get through life, I want to ask you, Paul Capsis, what gets you through life? What sustains your passion? for art and life uh, as a working artist in Australia? Oh, my goodness. That's heavy. That's big. Thank God I've got a coffee. Um, Well, what gets me through? I don't know. Every day. I think it is art, though, for me. I think it's music. It's it's film. Uh, I don't know. I, I find no matter if I'm in like a little depressed or things feel like they're really difficult and at the moment things are difficult, like I just find... Things are not easy for some reason, just, um, you know, getting older and family and dealing with certain things in your family. And um, I, uh, it's, always, it's always art, like reading like uh, Before the Deluge or reading a Christopher Isherwood or going into rehearsal and hearing Chelsea blow the roof off with her voice and the wonderful ensemble of people performing and singing. And I just feel like it's okay. Or seeing Patti Smith... In Sydney recently at the State Theatre, that was life-affirming. That, for me, gives me hope and courage. People have the power to rule, to rise up. You know, that's the great thing we've always got to remember because you can watch the news and see that nasty orange devil and you just go, well, what's the point? But no, you have to keep going. You have to keep fighting. Cabaret is on at the Athenaeum Theatre in Melbourne uh, from today, the 27th of April. Uh, It is a limited season, Mondays to Saturdays at 7.30pm. 
matinees Wednesday at 1pm, Saturday at 2pm. You can book by going to www.cometothecabaret.com.au. Paul Capsis, thank you so much for your company. Thank you, Richard. We've got the full range, I've realised today, of Melbourne's kind of theatre ecology on the show. Earlier, we had uh, the independent theatre company North of Eight. Uh, coming up shortly, we've got the Melbourne Theatre Company. Right now, we're going to talk about the latest Red Stitch production. I'm joined in the studio by Ella Caldwell, who's the Artistic Director of Red Stitch and performing in Will Eno's The Realistic Joneses, which is directed by my other guest, Julian Merrick. Welcome to you both. Oh, hi, Richard. Hello, Rich. Thank Lovely you. to have you all in. Thank Great you. Here. So, Ella, I'm going to start with you. Um, why choose The Realistic Joneses for the Red Stitch 2017 season? It's a it's it's got a history to it this this choice because um, I'm a huge fan of Will Eno's writing. He's someone that I really I think is unlike any other playwright that I've read, um, contemporary playwright. And I and we had a relationship with another of his plays previously, and I've read a few of his plays and loved them. But it's always a matter of the right kind of combination of everything coming together. So whilst I was aware of the script and loved it, uh, it hadn't kind of felt like the right time or certainly hadn't been the right um, combination of people. And then Julian and Neil actually approached me with the, the script and I said, oh, yeah, I know that. Oh, you're, oh, you're into it. Oh, you know Will Eno's work very well. That might, that might be ideal. And then the company, the rest of the company read it and just fed, fell head over heels for the, for the script itself. And, of course, we'd had a wonderful time working with Julian mm. uh, on Dead Centre Seawall a couple of years ago. So it was... It was, let's do it as soon as we possibly can then with this combination. Julian, what is it about Will Eno's writing and this play in particular that so fascinates you as a director? Oh, gee, how long have you got? (laughs) Um, They are beautifully intelligent plays. Um, Highly, uh, somebody said the other day, each line has an idea in it, and I think that that's right. Um, They're also very funny um, and complete works of art. So I, I don't know another playwright. Um, uh, Will has been described to me as, as, as sort of within the, um, the sort of successor to Edward Albee, really. Um, I don't know another playwright who combines um, such a, a finely honed dramatic instinct with such um, a razor-sharp intelligence and wit. So that's, that's a very... Um, alluring combination and when it's wrapped in a broad and compassionate humanity which it is and that's in this play but it's also in will i, I know him quite well and met him a few times um uh, and that that then then become the plays then become some of the best contemporary plays that you can do they're very demanding but they're very beautiful Now, I've read a review of The Realistic Joneses that describes it, and I'm going to quote this, as fundamentally about two men whose bodies and minds are shutting down and two women struggling to help them. Is that a fair summary? No. Not really. No, no. What would critics know? It's fair enough that that someone would say that, but they've they've maybe not quite honed in on the most beautiful part of it or the most important part of it. It it isn't. I understand that because, you know, Will's plays are very difficult to reduce 
um, to an issue. Um, it's, a, it's a bit like talking about Edward Albee's The Zoo Story uh, as a kind of mugging in a park. And it, you kind of go, no, that, that's not really what it's about. It's about life. Um, and, and The Realistic Joneses is absolutely about that. It's very difficult to get drama to open out onto the largest possible themes. Um, and when you do it, you always feel a bit like a hippie. Um, but within The Realistic Joneses, at any rate, love, life, mortality, hope... Um, these are the big things that drive that play and they are the mood of the play and the point of the play. And about bravery and hope for people that you love and in the face of mortality and about the... Look, it's actually very, very fun as well, you know, which that description doesn't quite sound like, but it, re it really is because you kind of have to... You have to have hope and humour to get through any of us do to get through life on a daily basis and to be aware human beings really so that's kind of what the experience is like from within it it's 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 a it's a joyful and very full-hearted experience and i get the feeling from what i've read about the play that it's it's very much uh, a play about communication empathy and understanding it's about two sets of neighbors with identical surnames coming to know one another so at its simplest level it's about interacting with our fellow human beings yeah human connection yeah that's right yeah. and why it's so important yeah um when we talk about it like that i suppose if anybody was to drop in on the play and and you know uh, we'd it. love you to. And we would love you to. <laughs> the thing that they would notice is that the quality of the writing is, if not wholly unique, then right up there at the highest level of the A grade. So it's, it's sense of poetic control and it's acoustic beauty as well as kind of it's, it's kind of pugnacity and thematic force but make it outstanding in that respect. So, you know, if there are any, any mistakes in it, they're ours, not his. <laughs> well, you've just opened yourself yeah. up. Yeah. <laughs> thanks, thanks for that, Julia. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> if Cameron Woodhead is listening. Yeah. <laughs> in terms of then the play, it sounds like it's such a perfect fit for Red Stitch in that notion of it being kind of a, an intimate forehander with two couples. Um, it is a, a, the, the domestic setting, the, the naturalism of it, because Red Stitch is a confined space in some way. It can be challenging to create a vast world inside yes. such an intimate theatre, and it's always fascinating to see designers rise to that challenge when the need arises. But the... The, the Red Stitch Actors Collective do tend to program work that, that naturally fits within the space of the theatre itself. You know the constraints you're working within and find work that, that matches that and occasionally challenges it as well. Yeah, that's right. Look, I think that um, challenges... Well, you've mentioned two words that are very interesting. Vast is very interesting in reference to this play. It's one of the key words of the play, really, and it, it's it's the idea of creating... of exploring vast ideas and vast themes and emotions within a familiar and fairly, um, as you said, domestic setting is, is something that I find very exciting that the play does. But also I think our audiences, I believe, enjoy a challenge. So whilst this play may be wrapped in something that sounds quite kind of... Um, safe and safe comfortable. Safe and easy to... It, yeah, it, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't describe it entirely as comfortable. No, no. Well, that, that absurdist edge um, yeah. uh, that is so much part of Eno's writing and the sense of melancholy that permeates yeah. the play as well as that absurdist humour. Yeah. Um, they're, they're an uncomfortable fit. Yeah. So for are. you as a director, trying yeah. to mesh them yeah. and make them a natural 
natural part of the play might be. Talk to us about that challenge. Well, you can only do it with an ensemble. I mean, that's the truth. Um, that the the demands on the acting are quite extraordinarily precise to to weld. Uh, kind of basically what is a comedy of line, you know, like punchlines, very, very funny, together with a, a tragic sensibility and to fuse those into one play and then keep the ideas up uh, throughout in a tripping and effortless way. Um, yeah, it, it's it, it's very demanding to do that. And you can only do it when the company have selected the play for the right reasons, when the ensemble are doing it for the right reasons, and when everybody works their guts out throughout the entire theatre process. And I, I do feel that, um, I, I certainly feel very fortunate that Red Stitch have both the resources, the capacity and the courage to to provide that opportunity. And I'm, I'm, I'm sure that that's why Will, you know, graciously gave us the, the rights to the play i think it's it's interesting what you said too about the the choice of plays that fit in 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 red stitch and in our space because i i recognize that you're, you're kind of right about that but to to a degree we do, we don't choose plays based on you choose them because they're that. good plays we choose yeah and we choose them because we've you know we've got 15 or so ensemble sitting in there reading the scripts and choosing the ones that absolutely sing to our hearts you know and challenge us and make us fight and make us you know question things so in a way then whether we can actually stage uh, the play becomes the the conversation down the track once we've fallen in love with it and you know our season our season this year is is a clear indication of that as as the as the year goes on both the new works from australia that we've programmed and and the international works have varying degrees of difficulty to to stage within our little space but the, the thing is is that the people who come together to work on them always do so for the right reasons because of the passion they have for the, the project so and they, they make it sing. And the passion for those projects has sometimes then resulted in Red Stitch staging work outside its own theatre. Uh, you have you took Grounded up to, up to Sydney. Sydney. Yep, yep. Uh, you've presented work at Theatre Works as well yep. in the past. Yep, and we recently went to QTC with The Flick with Sam Strong and Dead Centre Seawall, which um, Julian directed uh, a couple of years ago, then toured to Darwin, Brisbane and Sydney as well. So we're fortunate in that way that we get to share it. Mm-hmm. And which, I guess, to come back to something I was talking about earlier in the show, that notion about the interconnected nature of the theatre ecology, which for people who... Uh, just theatre goers, you might go and see an MTC show, you might go to a Malthouse show, a La Mama show, a Red Stitch show, and you associate, perhaps associate the plays with the venues that present them, rather than kind of thinking about the points of connection between those theatre ecologies and those different venues and presenting partners. The fact that Red Stitch are, have toured work around the country uh, and are showing Brisbane audiences what Melbourne theatre can be like and, and Sydney audiences and so forth forth. Julian, from your perspective mm. as as a director and also as a theatre academic and historian mm. and so forth, how important is the interconnected nature of the theatre ecology in Australia? Well, it's really important because that's how you manage risk. Um, and um, uh, some shows... I mean, it's, it's very easy to do uh, a, a theatre show that, that has all the surface 
of, of, of in, innovatory work or an experimental work, but is actually describing something underneath that is wholly known and typical. Um, it's a trap that you can fall into to, to get a show with a different sensibility, to actually grow the feelings and thoughts that are possible within the theatre is hard and it's a collective effort. You know, we're all part of something and all the companies collectively are part of this larger thing called Australian theatre. Um, and we often talk about that, those relations in, in competitive terms, you know, who, who's getting money and who's not and who's doing well and who isn't. But the reality is it's at least as much cooperative as it is competitive. And we all rely on each other um, sitting in that foyer and, and just <laughs> talking to the people that you've talked to. I've worked with most of them and, 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 and love them all. So, um, you know, you appreciate that. And as a community, you grow, you grow closer and you learn to place work hopefully where it will be best done and most appreciated. And I think in some ways Red Stitch are a perfect example of that cooperative approach to theatre making because not only is it a collective of actors, the full title of the company is Red Stitch Actors Theatre. The theatre is belongs to the actors. Uh, but it also, if you regularly attend Red Stitch productions, you'll see guest actors come in who've worked at other companies who you may have seen on the main stage at the MTC or elsewhere. So you are literally seeing that kind of uh, embodiment of the theatre ecology on stage at Red Stitch. Absolutely. There's always, I mean, there's an ongoing relationship and I guess it's because people in, in the, the people that are making the work are working there because they, they love the projects that we're working on. Um, you know, and I guess in a way Red Stitch has also evolved over the 16 years to, we talk about the different, the different sort of parts in that ecology and Red Stitch has, has shifted and grown and changed. We've remained true to that ensemble nature and that actors collective, but we have evolved as we were able and as we were, as it needed us to, I guess, as Melbourne and Australian Theatre needed us to, I believe, in terms of the work that we're producing now. And I know it's certainly inspired other companies around the country who've gone, mm, Red Stitch, that's a good model. Let's see if we can copy that and see where we can be in five to ten or twelve years' time. Well, that's exciting. Yeah. <laughs> uh, the Red Stitch production of Will Eno's The Realistic Joneses is on now, uh, previewing tonight and tomorrow night, opening on Saturday night and then running through until the 28th of May, Tuesdays to Saturdays at 8pm, Sundays at 6.30pm. Tickets range from $15 to $49. You can book by calling 9533-8083 or at www.redstitch.net. Ella and Julian, it's been a pleasure, as always, chatting to the two of you. Thank you. Thank Thanks you, Richard. very much, Richard. This has been a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Want to hear more? Check out our website at rrr.org.au.